asked if I'd set up a meeting with all of our general chairman out there and our state director out there so he could get their intake before he talked to the railroads. That would have never happened under the Pretoria administration. He wouldn't have cared what we had to say. He would have just met with the railroads and done whatever they said. Our vision is to operate within the framework of the trade union movement to provide a conduit, a voice, and vehicle for greater black and minority participation in the labor movement. Black workers are the canaries in the mine. People like Coleman Young, for example, he's coming in. He's attacked by Harry Bennett. There's this goon squad that's working for Henry Ford to kind of destroy the union efforts at that time. And uh, Bill Coleman picked up a pipe and went upside his head. So that was his end of his career at the Ford Motor Company. I enjoy helping other people. I enjoy knowing I helped somebody stay in their home. I enjoy knowing I brought a person out of sadness into happiness because all they wanted was to feel loved and cared for. I give you that. Answer them all. What else you need? I was surrounded by people who were always treating me poorly because I wasn't just being like, yeah, we need to do this. Or like, didn't you know that? Or like, God, like, just fucking read Lenin. Like, throw a brick at your boss. And they're like, okay, dude, like, I don't fucking know. Like, I don't know, but I know this isn't right. Welcome to this week's edition of the Labour Radio Podcast Weekly. I hope you had the chance to catch our Ukraine special edition this Wednesday. However, on today's show, we're going to present to you five exceptional shows with a focus on the past, present and future of the United States. There's a common thread that stitches together this week's episode. It's in very different and wide-ranging ways. Each segment is wrestling with questions of Labour representation within the public discourse both the opportunities and the limitations with the American system. We're going to start in the present, but I'm glad to say that after a brief hiatus, Talking Smart has returned. Steve Dodd and Greg Hines joined the show to reflect and offer their verdict on the first year of the Biden administration and what it's meant to the sheet metal, air, rail and transportation workers. We're then going to present you with something new. Tina Turner-Morfitt, Dr Audrey Terrell and Deborah Hall will bring to you Holler for Labour on Willamette Wake Up on KMUZ from Oregon. Formerly the hosts of a show on Labour Radio on Cable in Portland, this introductory episode, Morfitt, Terrell and Hall outline the mission of Holler for Labour, which they see as an important vehicle for greater black and minority participation within the labour movement in the Pacific Northwest. Then we'll share with you two episodes that take place within the city of Detroit. First we're going to a new episode of Working Class History, where in spite of the many accomplishments of the post-war United Auto Workers, African American workers found that opportunities to ascend within the union hierarchy remained limited. Herb Boyd helps to explain how these conditions precipitated the formation of the League of Revolutionary Black Workers. Staying in Detroit, I'll be honest, America Works from the Library of Congress is one of my favourite podcasts. I've listened to many excellent episodes of the show, but when I heard this recent interview with Henrietta Ivey, I said to Chris and Mel, we really must include this one in the weekly. 
found Ivy's description of the pain and pride involved in her work as a home healthcare professional to be amazingly poignant and affecting. We're going to share an extract with you. Finally, we return to the ever-brilliant and original Art and Labour podcast for a discussion of how art worker organising fits into an unorthodox place within the broader sphere of labour organising. At the same time, Lucia Love shares some of her discomfort with doctrinaire solutions expounded within leftist political theory and explores the complicated balance between institution building and revolutionary radicalism. Here's this week's show. You're listening to Talking Smart. official podcast of the International Association of Sheet Metal, Air, Rail, and Transportation Workers. This is Paul Pimentel, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Ben Nagy from Smart TD Communications, and Michael Bland from Smart Communications. As we've been doing for the past two years, we are recording remotely due to the pandemic. This episode is focused on what the Biden administration has done to benefit working families and SMART members over the course of the past year. Our featured guests are SMART Director of Governmental Affairs, Steve Dodd, and SMART TD National Legislative Director, Greg Hines. So since the bipartisan infrastructure bill has passed, and that was a couple of months ago, what does this mean for SMART members? Well, first of all, I, I think it's worth going back for a second and just noting to everybody the importance of the infrastructure bill in the first place. You know, th- this president has done something that all presidents have always talked about, but never were able to accomplish. You know, so this bipartisan infrastructure bill and now its implementation uh, means a great deal to not only sheet metal workers, but all workers, whether they're union or non-union across the United States. But what we've done in particular is we've been meeting with the DOE, the EPA, the DOT, and the Department of Ed and the White House about the implementation of this legislation. The best way to do this is to go forward and share all the recommendations about the programs that we can to the administration that support our members. Uh, We're asking that those programs that allocate funding for improving indoor air quality and encourage and incentivize the utilization of this, what we call the skilled and trained certified workforce as defined in the UC Davis ventilation verification white paper. The DOE has a lot of money for training and we're just wanting to make sure that they're including and accepting our training and our certification programs in development so we can qualify for the funding. Hi, Greg. So we've discussed a lot, you know, two-person crews on the podcast at great length. And uh, we know that it is an important issue for the uh, freight members of TD. We had a little bit of a disappointment here with it not being included in the Infrastructure Act, but we believe that there's a regulatory solution to it, thanks to the Biden administration. As far as the Build Back Better that actually was passed, there was a lot of stuff in there that was really good for us. Of course, it didn't have the big thing of two-person crew, but bus driver assaults was included in the bill. 
record amounts of money for transit, record amounts of money for Amtrak, and then also a PSR study, which we need the data to support our argument of how evil PSR is for our members. And precision scheduled railroading has been the worst thing to happen in the railroad industry in my lifetime. And so that's why this uh, scientific study on PSR is so necessary so that we have the ammunition to use that to craft legislation to combat this PSR. There's the same thing happening with the long train study it was also included in the bipartisan infrastructure bill. The long train study is taking place at the GAO, the uh, Government Accountability Office, and also FRA is doing a study which we are involved with, uh, Jared and I are both involved with, and we also hired Bob Lobby, who was the uh, operations director for FRA, and he retired a couple of years back, and he's a wealth of knowledge. And so he's going to be helping us uh, from our side in crafting the study to make sure that it's fair and it's not slanted in any way towards uh, the railroads and that it actually represents real conditions out there and not some manufactured ideal situation where they say, well, see, long trains are great. They work great. So we want to make sure that it takes place in challenging terrain and different situations and weathers, you know, hot and cold so that it's a fair study. But all of that data will be uh, used to craft legislation or regulation to limit these monster trains, which are very, very dangerous. Let me give you some contrast between the previous FRA administrator, Ron Batori, and Amit Bose, the current administrator. Under Batori, we would have meetings with FRA where they would not be collaborative at all. They would basically be him telling us what they were going to do and how much smarter he was than us because he was a railroad CEO. He never once asked for our input on anything. Contrast that with the meet Bose, who it's not uncommon for him to call me on my cell phone, to call Jared on his cell phone, to call Jeremy on his cell phone with questions and, you know, throw things back and forth. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? It's very interactional. And when he went to California with the uh, supply chain issues and he was going to meet with the railroads down in Long Beach, he asked if I'd set up a meeting with all of our general chairman out there and our state director out there so he could get their intake before he talked to the railroads. That would have never happened under the Batori administration. He wouldn't have cared what we had to say. He would have just met with the railroads and done whatever they said. So it's a great place that we're in as far as the FRA and the positive things that are happening there. Welcome to Hall of Labor, featured here on Willamette Wake Up on KMUZ Community Radio 88.5 and 100.7 FM celebrating the people, the culture, and civic life of the Mid-Willamette Valley. Take a slow ride and immerse yourself in the voices of those not represented by commercial radio or mainstream media. Stop and smell the roses here in the Mid-Valley. We are the voice of the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists, examining the labor perspective of laws, policies, practices, and union events that affect the everyday lives of Oregon's and Southwest Washington's working class. Welcome. We're your hosts, Tina turner Morfitt, Dr. Audrey Terrell, and Deborah Hall. My name is Dr. Audrey Terrell. I'm a retired staff executive from the International United Auto Workers Women's Department in Detroit. 
I am currently the vice president of the Oregon Coalition of Black Trade Unions. We can get some things done. We can talk. We can get together with folks in our community and bring our powerful voices to the labor movement. We've also been involved with podcasts and hosting radio shows prior to this one. We began doing the KBU Labor Radio Show in 2013, and we um, had the opportunity to interview international guests. We had national guests and regional and local. And, you know, some of the folks and some of the issues that we had um, an opportunity to deal with on the show, you know, some of my favorites was when we had the opportunity to interview the co-founder of the CBTU, Mr. William Bill Lucy. Oh, I remember that. That was fabulous. And we've had Mr. Lucy I'm on the show, show several times. We try to have him on each year. We also had um, a young man for one of our first international shows. He was the president of the Buena Venture chapter of the union, the poor union, and his name was yeah. Juan Warl Castro. Mm-hmm. You know, we um, one of our other shows is, is we had folks on from Nigeria, you know, trying to get the young ladies back when they were kidnapped. Well, that was so, so special. Tina, how many shows stick out to you? Well, actually, when I think of the international show, and um, I was very interested in hearing the other side of the story, because when we hear about labor strifes in other countries, uh, we always hear a version that is always kind of whitewashed. And so it was really interesting hearing what the brother had to say about what the overall effects were of what was happening in in his country. For some local shows, we were involved with the local radio cab. They had a turkey project each year where they were able to, through contributions and funds through their foundation, to have, have their drivers going out and, and delivering food boxes and turkeys on Thanksgiving. And we were able to, to help with that and, and help them pass out the food boxes at radio cab. And Tina got us involved with that one, too. We seek to create a culture of equity and inclusion of all trade unions to develop a stronger state labor movement. We strive to develop and to fulfill the dream of local black pioneers to achieve economic, political, and social justice for all working families in the Pacific Northwest. Our vision is to operate within the framework of the trade union movement to provide a conduit, a voice, and vehicle for greater black and minority participation in the labor movement. Black workers are the canaries in the mines. We are the face of more than 2.5 million black workers across the nation. Harmful elements to stifle black workers stifle all workers. Elements that uplift black workers uplift all workers. The time is now for all workers to stand up, to step out, and to speak up defending their own storylines of their everyday victories and challenges, and to leave their work environments and their unions better than when they found them in the beginning. Once again, thank you for tuning into our segment of Holla for Labor on Willamette Wake Up on KMUZ Community Radio on 88.5 and 100.7 FM. We'll check you again next month. Looking forward to it. This is a union town, a union town.
In Detroit in 1968, with the background of civil rights struggles, the Vietnam War, a global wave of protest and a major urban insurrection, black auto workers in the city organised themselves to fight against discrimination and eventually radically transform society, setting up the League of Revolutionary Black Workers. This is working class history. In the 1940s there were numerous industrial disputes where white workers shut down or slowed down production, not to win any improvements to pay or conditions but to protest against the hiring or promotion of black workers. This is Herb Boyd. Herb was an auto worker in Detroit, a member of the League, and is the author of Black Detroit, A People's History of Self-Determination. We can see then as uh, the, the growing union movement and some of the tension even in the union movement for, uh, for the rank and file, the lack of promotions and leadership roles for the African-American worker. And that creates some tension there. But after a while, you have individuals there who are just absolutely steadfast, you know, in their determination to make sure that we carve out a niche here. People like Coleman Young, for example, he's coming in, um, you know, after serving in World War II, he comes back, he gets a job at the Ford Motor Company. He's attacked by Harry Bennett, there's this goon squad that's working for Henry Ford to kind of destroy the union efforts at that time. And uh, Coleman picked up a pipe and went upside his head. So that was his end of his career at the Ford Motor Company. And it pushed him into a whole nother thing in terms of the TULC, the Trade Union Labor Council. Again, we're talking about the black worker not able to exercise any kind of a power and assert themselves within the larger movement, begin to create their own, you know, offshoots and their kind of derivative forms of the union. TULC is one. And then after that, you move into the 19, the whole civil rights period when uh, Dr. King arrives in Detroit in 1963. See, that's another thing that's important is that everybody talk about, you know, what happened with uh, the Great March on Washington in, uh, in August of 1963, but before that, they had a dry run, a, a dress rehearsal, so to speak, in Detroit. And the people like uh, Reverend C.L. Franklin and Benjamin McFall, James Del Rio, were some of the important leaders and then uh, some of our civic leaders at that time in Detroit who were instrumental in, in inducing Dr. King to come to Detroit. And the purpose was as a fundraiser. And he spoke at, at the uh, Cobo Arena and uh, the speech that he delivered there would be similar to the speech that he delivered in, in Washington, the I Have a Dream speech. And of course, with Dr. King, we have to understand that by 1967, 68, he was moving a far more militant, radical way than the kind of stuff he was talking about generally with the civil rights movement. In the early to mid-1960s, Groups of workers and radicals in the city were meeting and developing both organizing strategies and revolutionary theory. These included Uhuru, a black socialist group, which contained most of the people who'd become the core central group of the League. A key event in the birth of the League itself was what is generally referred to as the 1967 Detroit riot. I think the important thing for us was that uh, we learned from the Detroit Rebellion, and I keep saying that over and over again because that's the main lesson we got. When the Detroit Rebellion took place uh, and the National Guard and the 101st Airborne were sent in and they imposed curfew, if you got sick, you couldn't go to the doctor. If you got hungry, you couldn't get no food. But if you had a badge from Chrysler, Ford, or General Motors, 
You could get through the police line, the National Guard line, the Army line, all of them to take your butt to work. You know, so the fundamental conclusion we draw from that was that the only place in this society that black people had any value was at a point of production. And that's why after the rebellion, we turned all our efforts into organizing inside the plants. And believe it or not, uh, like, a, like an accident in history, one year from that time, drum was born. That's all we've got time for in this episode. Catch you next time. And you can't get it where you're at, but you can sure get it here. So come rain or sleet or dark and night. From the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. Welcome to America Works, interviews with contemporary workers throughout the United States, collected by the library's American Folklife Center as part of its Occupational Folklife Project. This is AFC staff folklorist Nancy Gross, and this America Works podcast features excerpts from a longer interviews with Henrietta Ivey, a dedicated personal home health care aide from Detroit, Michigan. She was interviewed by Claire Luce, a gerontologist from Michigan State University, and her colleague, the epidemiologist Khalid Ibrahim, as part of the Archie Green Fellowship documenting occupational experiences of dozens of home health care professionals throughout the state of Michigan. Uh, I like to refer to us as home care professionals. Um, there are times that people refer to us as home care workers, and that's usually when, you know, um, because that's been the word for so long. But when you think about the work that we do, it's, the word professional definitely comes to mind. So I prefer home care professional. It started um, when my grandmother became ill. Um, she was diagnosed in 2000, I think it was 99 or 2000, with congestive heart failure. And we found ourselves routinely going to grandma's house, uh, taking care of her. It got to the point where I started doing the bulk of the work um, and was approached by her uh, social worker that, hey, you know, you can get paid for taking care of your grandma. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. And it just became more of a job after that. Once grandma passed away, then my uncle became ill. So I became his home care provider. And it just kind of trickled down from there. I've always been a compassionate person, but it really brought the compassion out in me. And the joy that I see other people when you have someone taking care of you that's genuinely taking care of you, not because of the pay, because we know the pay is not super, but it's because of the compassion and the relationships that are built when you are a home care professional. The washing of the hair, yeah, the bathing, cleaning, dressing, dressing even sometimes helping them brush their teeth, like literally, because they're so weak sometimes from a chemo or they're weak from an injury or they're just losing ability to use their hands and stuff. I literally have to brush their teeth, uh, comb their hair, uh, change their briefs, um, all of that. It gets real personal. And I've had a client was like totally embarrassed. She had an incident and I was on my way home, just finished on the freeway and she called. She said, I'm so sorry, but I had an accident. Can you come back? Now, mind you, I'm minutes from getting on the freeway. And because of that relationship and, and me, I'm going to be old one day. I would hope someone would be compassionate enough to help me out if that ever happens. My mindset didn't go into, oh, my God. I'm like, oh, let me run. I'm zooming to get back to her because I'm thinking, oh, my God, she's landing this stuff and I got to get to her. So it, it, it gets personal from that way when you build that 
one-to-one -one relationship. You want to make sure they're okay. You want to keep giving them that sense of pride. And for me, I had to go back and give her her sense of pride. I've had a client call me her maid. You know, they use words like my gal or my maid. Um, derogatory things like my housekeeper. That's not what we are, per se. But most of the time, your clients are in need of those services, and they are appreciative of it. But yes, I have encountered that one that wanted to feel like, okay, I have someone here, and yeah. And it was, it was hurtful, because I'm like, I get in my car like, I am not a maid. Okay, that's a different whole, and maids get paid more than us. <laughs> really, they do. Maybe in her vision of mine, she wanted to have that one day in her life, someone to cook and clean for her, just because. But that's okay, that's your fantasy. I'm gonna do my job. <laughs> I'm gonna do my job, and I'm gonna do it well. You know, I, I'm, I'm always happy to say I'm a home care provider or a home care professional. Um, I know there's some people go, oh, okay. You know, they look at it like, wow. And then the other ones go, oh, so you wash toilets, huh? Or you wipe behinds for a living. And I'm like, yeah, that's what I do. You know, for me, I get a joy of doing it. But the disrespect, I, am, I don't take too kindly to that. I love giving people good care. I, I mean, when I walk out in that kitchen and shine, they'd be like, oh, girl, you cleaned this kitchen. I'm like, I know, I know. Or, you know, if I make their bed, I make, you know, they say, I've never, you know, what, what really gets me is when I get a client that says, I've never had someone do what you do. And I'm like, really? But it's home care. They're like, not like the way you do it. When you talk about caring for someone who can no longer do things for themselves, that's home care. So when you find the home care workers like myself who are truly dedicated home care workers, there's plenty of us out there that does this. Without my, me being a home care professional, how many people are not going to be able to stay in their homes? I enjoy helping other people. I enjoy knowing I helped somebody stay in their home. I enjoy knowing I brought a person out of sadness into happiness because all they wanted was to feel loved and cared for. I kid you that. And some more. What else you need? Well, as you can see, I, I get emotional and I get I'm really so round up Good because God. when I think about it, it's like, who, when we have so many people out here suffering like we do. And we have people who's working and literally working legit, legitimately. How can you not see that as noble? All we ask it for is can we have a livable wage with benefits, with dignity, with respect? That's it. That is all. You've been listening to personal home health care worker Henrietta Ivy. To hear the complete interview with Henrietta Ivy, as well as interviews with more than 30 other personal home health care professionals throughout the state of Michigan, please visit us online at www.loc.gov forward slash folklife, or just search online for the library's Occupational Folklife Project. This is AFC staff folklorist Nancy Gross. On behalf of the American Folklife Center, and with special thanks to AFC intern Camille Acosta for her help with this episode. Thank you for listening to America Works. Hi, welcome. This is Art and Labor. We are a podcast. Um, we are a podcast for art workers and by art workers um, and artists, and, and we're also crazy. Um, so we go off the rails sometimes, but sometimes we have really big... Um, guests who have well-researched papers and interesting stuff to say you never know what you're gonna get and that's the beauty of our show welcome to art and labor i think back up, up about this like 
um, panel. Oh God, this was like in like 2019 or something. Um, and it was like new museum people and some other museum union and then like two Teamster guys from Long Island. Oh, great. And it was and like, they're like, who are these fruitcakes? Yeah. Yeah. And they like, they had all these, like, they have like um, cultural stuff that I think like we could adopt more. Like they were saying like, um, why do you guys go to the holiday party with all the bosses and like <laughs> maintain like friendly relationships with um, the bosses? Uh, and uh, it's like <laughs> tough in art world context because it's like things are a lot more like mixed around like you're kind of expected to um, socialize with everybody a little bit or something. Well, I think that like, yeah, it's hard to say in a like in a museum like, oh, why would like why would you talk? It's like, well, I don't know. Maybe the head curator is interesting. I'm sorry. Like, I, maybe That's I'm here because I like art. That's like, the thing. Like, like, yeah, we're expected to socialize, but also like, we all like this uh thing called art and yeah talk about it. <laughs> and that's why that's why the art world organizing is so unique because most people hate their fucking job and hate where they are and hate what they're doing mm. and just like realize they're a little cog that needs yeah realistically it's enough to fight for like job security but then there's still mm. this like huge gap between like these departments that are deciding things and then like the way that people just have to facilitate these decisions and like art institutions have always been used as this microcosm for larger systems and that's why we think like oh, sure, like, this thing that's applied here could just be applied over there. Like, if we figure it out in the museum, we can figure it out in the government. And it's, like, not necessarily because it's so, like, self-referential and insular and, like, and we don't really have cultural institutions that cater to the people so we're still going to be recreating these systems of hierarchy definitely and like this was sort of the thing that i was kind of like interested to crack open a little bit in the in in our talk right now because like i am fully for a workers movement and i think it's super important for us to be organizing but then i think about like you know when people are talking about creating these contracts and like supporting themselves and stuff it's all still like a subset or a buffer of capitalism and it's still mm -hmm. it's like okay i'm just giving myself a little bit of room in this noose but I'm, I might spend my whole life and then my kids might spend their life and we might all just be like still pushing against this monolith of like a system we can't get out of. I've like stopped identifying myself as anything. 
Yeah, it's kind of tough because uh, our, our show is called Art and Labor. I think people expect us to be an authority on this stuff, but I, I think we'd be the first to be like, we're not an authority on this. And this is a very, very open topic. It's is so there, broad. <laughs> is there like a an identifier for a person who just like can see validity in many leftist tendencies and then like wants to cherry pick and make a whole like s- sort of little buffet thing <laughs> like I mean, it's like i'm, a, kind I'm of like a i'm a buffet connoisseur <laughs> like of of the left like don't call me a thing because i will like disagree with half of whatever your thing is but that's but good. then also think the other half is amazing yeah i'm like unions fuck yes also complicated maoism Fuck yeah. I I felt like when we started, I was surrounded by people who were always treating me poorly because I wasn't just being like, yeah, we need to do this. Or like, didn't you know that? Or like, God, like, just fucking read Lenin. Like, throw a brick at your boss and like okay dude like i don't fucking know like i don't know but i know this isn't right and i don't know if like the things that anyone's telling me to do make sense and like it takes me a long time to act and i I talk a lot before i act and i say things that i mean and things that i don't mean so if everybody is like still listening i'm sure they've heard both sides of that but like i don't have like the i don't have any propaganda in me i'm not like you gotta just do this and then you're gonna go to heaven it's like you're not gonna go to heaven there is no heaven morality is like the most complicated thing you could fucking imagine um like if you kill a sexual harasser, are you bad or good? I don't know. Like, you know what I mean? That's all we have for this early March edition of the Labour Radio Podcast Weekly, our selection from the many shows that make up the Labour Radio Podcast Network. You can find links to the shows featured in this week's episode in the show notes. And you can, of course, browse a great number of other shows at labourradionetwork.org. You can also look for them with the hashtag LabourRadioPod on all the big evil social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. The show was edited and produced by Chris Garlock, Mel Smith and myself, Patrick Dixon, and promoted by Harold Phillips. You can follow us on the above-mentioned platforms at LabourRadioNet. Thanks for spending the time with us today. We hope to see you again soon.